the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Live from Northern California, it's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. And a pleasant good afternoon to you. Welcome. Good to have you on board for this second day of May. It is indeed a Tuesday and uh, a belated a belated May Day to you, by the way. And uh, great to spend some time with you. Lots to talk about on today's show. So um, we're going to, if I might, uh, dispense with some of the, the typical uh, formalities and just get down to cases. One of the issues that we know has been of growing concern here in California, and that is the growing foster child population and and part of the challenge has been that there are parents that are struggling financially there may be issues in the home of abuse be it physical abuse emotional abuse uh, parents that for one reason or another just can't handle raising their children and oftentimes for the sake and protection of the child the child needs to be removed that from that home until the parents can work things out or uh, legal issues whatever it might be uh, that they're being confronted by can be resolved this in my opinion has been for years an incredible ministry opportunity for loving christian parents that would be willing to open their home to a child, provide that child some stability, provide that child an opportunity to really see what a loving, healthy family looks like, what loving parents look like. And we've heard so many stories down through the years from people like uh, Vern Tyler um, over at Hosanna Homes. Uh, they, uh, my goodness, I, I mean, he, Vern and Judy, I think, have, have foster parented down through the years something like the upwards of 500, 800 children. And the ability to be able to speak truth into their lives before that child coming from turmoil, a sense of, of stability has oftentimes been for these children. Children, if not a literal lifesaver, uh, certainly an emotional lifesaver. Sadly, though, much of that is right now extremely at risk across the state of California, meaning the opportunity for a troubled child to be placed in a loving, stable Christian home um, is at tremendous risk because of a proposal right now being considered by the California State Legislature in the form of Senate Bill 407. We get more now from Greg Bird, Director of Capital Engagement for the California Family 
counsel. And Greg, I got to tell you, while part of the legislation that you're about to explain to our listeners is not at all surprising to me, I, I think what is particularly troubling is understanding that there's a shortage of foster parents in California to begin with. And now for the state to essentially say to a good percentage of foster parents, not interested, don't need you, your brand of stability is not something we think California foster kids need, is quite frankly shameful. No, absolutely. Um, you know, and despite, you know, as you said, the shortage of foster families here in California, this bill is really targeting uh, Christians and others with a traditional or biblical view on gender or sexuality and more or less says families like that uh, can't be foster parents. Um, under SB uh, 407, this is a bill introduced by Senator Scott Weiner out of uh, San Francisco, who we've talked about before. Um, he, uh, at the hearing, talked about that 30% of California foster youth now identify um, as LGBTQ+. And because of that, we need to make sure that every foster family uh, that wants to foster a kid needs to be prepared to uh, affirm uh, an LGBTQ identity and behavior uh, if their kid uh, comes out as, or comes out, just says, hey, I'm, I'm gay, I'm transgender, uh, parents will have to promise that they will have to encourage that, affirm that, and take uh, their kids, their foster kids, to any type of medical transitioning that uh, the state deems appropriate. And for a lot of Christian families, that's just going to be the uh, way too much. They're not going to be able to do that without violating their own faith. You know, what's particularly problematic about this, and, I, and I'm still trying to wrap my head around how all of a sudden we began conversations related to, to kids that are, you know, barely uh, preteen, uh, struggling with issues of sexual identity and things of that sort. I mean, it's almost as if we're, we're forcing them to make these decisions at a time in life when they're, you know, completely emotionally incapable. I mean, there's there's a reason why the age of majority is set for 18. It's not just because you need to be an adult to sign a contract. It's because you need time to mentally and emotionally mature. And all of us know people that are in their 30s that are not ready to make those kinds of decisions, let alone an 8, 10, 12-year-old child. How some of this, in my mind, Greg, doesn't constitute child abuse is beyond me. But then, then to say to parents, look, we don't care what your values are. Um, you're you're going to have to basically embrace anything that comes into your home. Uh, providing a loving, stable environment for a child is no longer our first priority. I mean, it is, do you get the sense that's kind of the, the message that's being sent here? Well, well, the message is when they consider what is loving, what is a stable home, they, they can't imagine that a, that a parent could actually love a child, affirm a child in their value as a human being, but might hesitate on encouraging a child to take puberty blockers, cross-sex hormones, and uh, get a double mastectomy when they're 13, right? They can't, in their mind, uh, the only way to affirm a child is to let them, uh, to follow the child's lead. If the child says, you know, hey, today I'm, I'm feeling pansexual and I think I'm bi, the the, the parent the foster parents are supposed to say, you go for it. 
right? You know who you are, right? Kids are never wrong. Let them be authentic, right? In any other topic, if you have kids, no, a loving parent questions, like, where did you get this idea? Who put this in your mind, right? You know, uh, has something happened to you? A lot of sexual abuse happens to uh, foster care kids. That has a great effect on a kid's sense of who they are, their sexuality, uh, you know. And, and you interview any of these kids who are now detransitioning, which they're coming out of the woodwork. Uh, people like Chloe Cole, who is a, a young lady, um, a teenager still, uh, from the Central Valley, who had a double mastectomy uh, at 15 and realized at sex 16 she made a terrible mistake and now she is suing Kaiser for, uh, you know, cutting off her healthy breasts uh, without letting her understand the long-term consequences of her decisions. We don't let kids get tattoos, you know, uh, until they're 18. Yeah, we let them, you know, remove their healthy body parts. It, it doesn't make any sense. And what it's going to do, it's going to scare more people uh, from even trying to foster kids, you know. And these are these are kids who just need stability. Um, and people of faith, in large part, are geared and motivated by their own faith to, to care for orphans and to, to love the less fortunate. And I don't think they realize how many people of faith are actually in the system. And they're about to find out because, you know, you can't. And here's another part. They, they they said in the hearing, hey, we're not forcing you religious people to change your beliefs. You can believe whatever you want, right? We're not telling you you can't believe that, you know, uh, that sex is determined by biology. But when it comes to your foster kids, you're going to have to affirm what we tell you to affirm. We're, we're going to – you have to repeat um, uh, our belief systems uh, – to your kids, you have to say things that we believe, and that's going to violate your faith. And so that's that is what's unconstitutional. And the Supreme Court has knocked down these type of policies before in other states, and we expect that's going to happen in this time. Yeah, it's just tragic because you know, uh, as any adult will tell you, you'll have a lifetime to make horrific, ill-advised, irreversible decisions. Let's let a child be a child. And, you know, while, while we may agree or disagree with the mechanics of it, with the morality of it, um, let's at least encourage children to have a childhood. And then if they reach the age of, say, 18 and they decide to make those decisions, well, they're now an adult and there are consequences they're going to have to live with. But again, if you're not protecting children from making bad decisions, I mean, who, who of us would say to a 15-year-old that loves to play with G.I. Joe and, and uh, uh, you know, toy tanks and things of that sort, yeah, go ahead and, and you know, be, become a mercenary and, and go fight in a war. No one in their right mind would suggest something like that. Wait till the kid gets 18, they can make that decision but a child needs to be allowed to be a child and a child needs a parent's guidance and love and you know if they make a decision at the end of the day as an adult that you don't agree with you still love that child um, unconditionally I, I think that's biblical but to allow children to make ill-advised decisions irreversible decisions while yet a child and you're not standing up to say wait a minute you you may regret this come two years from now, five years from now, ten years from now. Once they're an adult, 
they can make those choices when they're still a child. Why we're not doing more to protect children's right to be a child is just beyond me. Uh, quickly, before our time expires, Greg, uh, where do things stand right now with Senate Bill uh, 407? I understand it's already gone through and passed the first committee hearing. Uh, when does it go on for the full legislature for a vote? Do we know yet? Well, it, it actually went through two committee hearings. I testified, and, and you, it's interesting, you mentioned Vern uh, Tyler. Uh-huh. He actually testified in the first hearing. I didn't be that in my press list, but he he came out, talked about the 800 kids that he fostered, plus all the other families that he uh, placed a lot of these kids in. And then it went through the Judiciary Committee, and I testified against the bill there. So now the bill is in uh, the... Uh, it's going to be her, uh, in the Appropriations Committee, and then from there it will go to the floor of the Senate. And then it, will, then it has an opportunity to go to the Assembly side. So people got to realize if this is going to eliminate, this is going to eliminate not just Christians, but Muslims, anyone who has a conservative view of sexuality from being foster parents at all. It's not just, it's not just if you have a kid who identifies as LGBT. If you only take babies, if you only take toddlers, you know, for temporary, I know a lot of people do that, uh, you won't be able to be a foster parent even to those kids. Wow, it's just absolutely remarkable what they're what they're trying to what they are doing and what they're trying to do. Um, Senate Bill four hundred seven. You want to call your member of the California State Legislature, and uh, you can certainly go online and Google that to find out who that person is in your particular district. Ask both your state senator as well as your uh, member of the assembly to please vote against Senate Bill four hundred seven. That's SB four zero seven. More details on the web. CaliforniaFamily.org. That's CaliforniaFamily.org. Our thanks to Greg Bird, Director of Capital Engagement for the California Family Council for that <laughs> admittedly tragic update. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, welcome back to the conversation. I want to turn a corner to another hot topic as if the last one wasn't hot enough. And and that is a topic that's kind of co-mingled with a number of issues, not just the cost of living in the city of San Francisco, the challenges that so many people are facing trying to make ends meet. I mean, uh, even the worries over what's going on on Wall Street, the banking system, and uh, recessionary times aside. San Francisco, as we know, is one of the most expensive places in the entire country to reside. So the notion of helping people try to make ends meet is is probably an altruistic one, if not a, a wholly unrealistic one. Add to that the perhaps misplaced notion that the uptick in crime that we've seen largely post COVID, largely since 2020, um, is directly attributable to economic times. Now, what kind of falls apart with that observation is that when you start to look at the kind of crimes taking place, often it's not people who are going to the grocery store and stealing bread and bologna because their kids are hungry. It's people that are stealing because they know they can sell the goods for higher prices so they can go out and buy some toy or people that are trying to feed a drug habit. So there may be some serious thought that we need to give to the notion of creating some sense of economic structure 
we've often heard it um, tied into uh, basic income or universal basic income. Uh, you've heard perhaps those phrases utilized. The notion that, for example, in San Francisco, every single San Francisco resident would receive a minimum amount of money. If you have a job, probably doesn't apply to you, but everybody would get a minimum amount of money, and the thinking goes that with that, it will alleviate San Francisco's crime problem. Really? Well, let's get some insights from Dr. Robert Wright, Senior Research Fellow at the American Institute for Economic Research. And Dr. Wright, we appreciate you taking some time out of your schedule to be with us. First, take us back a little bit of a, perhaps perspective here in terms of the, the notion of so-called universal basic income. Where, where does that find its, its roots, its genesis? Uh, well, thanks for having me on. Um, you know, Thomas Paine is often attributed uh, with the first uh, universal basic uh, income scheme. Uh, he came up with the idea about 15 uh, or so years after writing that famous uh, pamphlet, Common Sense, that launched the uh, American Revolution. Um and he had been influenced by uh, what he saw uh, during the French Revolution, and um, you know, but it wasn't it wasn't seriously taken up. Uh, it's a very difficult um, policy to to implement in some ways, and you know, some people are behind it because uh, you know, supposedly it's easier than unconditional, or excuse me, than than conditional. Um, you know, traditional welfare uh, payments uh, because you don't have to verify anything. You just send checks out to, to everyone, uh, sort of like the stimulus uh, payments that uh, the federal government's been making periodically over the last uh, 20 or so years. Um, but of course, uh, the money's got to come from someplace, and that is the that's the rub. That's the <laughs> that's the tough nut to uh, to to solve. Yeah, and you know, uh, we we kind of going through much of the stimulus payments that we saw during COVID. You know, and I, I've often laughed. People have talked about the notion that well, one of the reasons why it's so difficult to get people to come back to work now is because they're enjoying all of this free money, as if a stipend of four hundred or twelve hundred dollars is suddenly going to be a life changer. Um, that said, I guess there is a, a bit of which that 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 unproven notion of give them a little bit of money and it will solve all their problems ties right into this. Now, I, I understand that one of the proposals here, at least under consideration in San Francisco, um, is a universal basic income of fifteen thousand dollars per year. Anybody that lives in the city of San Francisco will immediately tell you if it was fifteen thousand dollars a month, you might struggle to make ends meet. <laughs> where, where where do they come up with these numbers? And 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 just as important, Doctor Wright, where are they going to come up with all this money? Uh, I I don't know, and I and I don't know. Uh, what I do know uh, is that I have uh, ninety nine problems, and every single one of them I can trace to the government. <laughs> we used to in this country have a large number of charities, some religious, some secular. Uh, they were uh, paid for by donations. And it was uh, said, and I think, uh, you know, with a good deal of truth, that 
both parties gain from the transaction, both the giver and the recipient. Because the giver was giving, uh, you know, some of his or her income uh, voluntarily to a specific person or group of people who they felt as though they wanted to uh, to aid uh, in, in, in some way, right? So they're, they're, uh, they can legitimately feel good about themselves. They are in you know, many cases legitimately fulfilling uh, religious uh, obligations. It gave people uh, reasons to go to church other than you know, purely spiritual ones. And it truly created uh, community real communities, not the way that the word is thrown around, you know, to today to mean any group of people who uh, who are all trying to get the, you know, the same the same thing from the government. Uh, but with these uh, various UBI um, programs and, uh, and you know, the, the gift, uh, the guaranteed income for, for transgender people and the um, uh, abundant uh, birth project and all of that. Uh, basically what the government is doing is taking money from people who have some and giving it to groups that the government thinks uh, needs it. And a lot of times it looks uh, arbitrary. It looks like it's uh, virtue signaling. And it, it um, the, the amounts, is, as you noted earlier, you know, seem arbitrary or capricious. Like they're just coming up with, uh, with, with, with figures. And, uh, you know, sometimes those figures are just because that's what they happen to uh, to get um, from uh, a foundation, which is the way it's been working. Uh, these pilot projects have been working in most states. But California's flipped the script, as it often does. And uh, in California, it's the government that is funding many of these, some uh, directly and sometimes like in South San Francisco uh, via the YMCA. So they say, oh, no, it's a private entity that's doing it. It's the YMCA. But the YMCA got the funding from uh, from the government. And, of course, you know, that means ultimately from from taxpayers. Wow. And I'm curious in terms of the kind of research that's gone into this. I mean, they, they come up with these numbers. They come up with these ideas. Has there ever been in in, in the background work and investigation that you've done uh, been a case of an example, either here in the United States or overseas? I know sometimes these, these sorts of, uh, you know, very social feeling programs are, are popular in places like the Netherlands and Finland and so forth. They tend to be a little bit more um, experimenting when it comes to social ideas. Is there any example of where this has been applied that has shown an appreciable change in quality of life and an appreciable decrease in the crime rate? I mean, if the argument is we need to do this because the reason why we have high crime is because people are not making enough money, then that would suggest to me that just the opposite ought to be true, that once these sort of of, uh, money giveaways are applied, that we should see an instant change in the crime rate. Yeah, it, um, you know, I, I wrote a book uh, about UBI with uh, Alexandra Prezvilinska uh, of um, uh, the Kaminsky School of Management in Warsaw, and uh, we looked at uh, UBI experiments and, and pilots and whatnot throughout history and throughout the world, and uh, there, there really hasn't been yet a true experiment, you know, with the, with the control group and all of that. 
but what we have noticed is uh, there's this there's this tendency where uh, the proponents of UBI say, "Oh, look, well the people who got the money report that they're better off." <laughs> You know, like we needed, <laughs> like we needed that information, right? Um, and uh, they also tend to, you know, do all sorts of things. And it's, you know, it's hard to tell if they're just inept as, as social scientists uh, or that they're very clever and they know, they know exactly what they're doing. But there, there's also a tendency to forget about the fact that cash is fungible. So they'll say all sorts of things like, oh, well, the, you know, the money was spent on Bibles and medicine um, with, without looking at how the increased income affected the entire range of purchases from, from the household, right? Uh, as, if, as if there were discrete dollars or, or other currencies coming into these people and then they were, you know, saving those in a jar and then just buying the Bibles and the medicine with the, with, uh, with the money. Um, uh, so it's it's really it's really kind of a mess, and and so th- that's why uh, you know as a researcher at the um, American Institute for Economic Research, where we put a, a very high premium on science, uh, what I have to say is that I uh, um, can't reject the hypothesis that UBI uh, doesn't do anything um, on that helpful for society. Um, you know, we, we just don't know, in other words, is the layman's uh, way of putting it, because um, there uh, have, have been um, no true attempts to, uh, you know, to try this out uh, society-wide. They always fail on, on at least one of the, the, the three main categories that uh, the um, Basic Income Earth Network put, puts out as, you know, the definition of, of UBI. Uh, they're either not universal where, you know, certainly money that just goes to, to trans people or to artists is not universal. Um, they're not uh, basic, meaning that they are either too little money, like uh, in Alaska, or, um, you, you know, they're, they're some, sometimes too, too much money, and they're never um, really an income in, in the sense of a, a lifelong stream of money. They are always, you know, they run for a year or two or three at most. And it's not clear that uh, that's long enough to, to affect people's behavior on important things like criminality or uh, educational uh, attainment. Um, all of these things run run in at least two, two directions, right? So... Uh, UBI proponents say, hey, you know, well, well, people will now have time to get an education, which is true, but uh, also means that that education will be less valuable uh, to them because uh, of this uh, stream of money that's that's coming to them for, uh, for nothing. Well, you know... Uh... I, I'm certainly no no scientist by a long shot, but I have to suppose that there's something that seems to be terribly f- elementary or, or fundamental or basic in the conclusion that, you know, if the survey is, if everybody got free $15,000, would uh, would that help out, would make, make life better? I don't know anybody that would say no to that, including including even a few people that make over a half million dollars a year would say, yeah, an extra 15 grand, you know, uh, we're going to get you an airplane and go fly to New York for the weekend and uh, go see a show and have dinner and come back. You know, life-changing? Maybe not. Would it improve your station in life? I think anybody would argue that. Whether or not, though, it's the kind of sustained improvement that is 
is suggested is necessary for people that are living at at the, the lowest income rungs within society. Well, that's probably an entirely different story, particularly if that that money is being metered out over a, a projected amount of time. Uh, you know, as I suggested in my opening marks, it it, it seems to me that you know uh, fifteen thousand uh, dollars will be a life changing. Uh, <laughs> maybe if you got it every month over the year in a city like San Francisco, not so convinced. If you've just tuned in, Dr. Robert Wright is with us today, Senior Research Fellow with the American Institute for Economic Research. We often couch this discussion in terms of how it benefits the least of these. Now, when we come back, I want to talk about the opposite side, and that is the the economic consequences. For example, what San Francisco is presuming, if you use a baseline of about 815,000 residents, could cost the city upwards of $12, 13000000000 billion a year. That's only almost twice its existing budget. So what about the sustainability of any of these ideas? We'll talk about that next as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. So normally in a, a healthy economy, there is an exchange of labor for wages and that goes to produce products that then get sold and then the income comes in and the process, the cycle sort of uh, repeats itself in the simplest, very simplest of terms. Uh, how do you go about just giving money away and where does it come from? And if it's coming from taxpayers, where are they getting it from? That maybe is the big part of this equation that, you know, at a level to say every individual ought to have at least a minimum ability to to have enough money to be able to survive. I don't know if 15 grand in San Francisco is surviving, but nevertheless, uh, it's the where does it come from part of the equation that seems to be also pretty murky. Dr. Robert Wright with us today, Senior Research Fellow with the American Institute for Economic Research. Uh, by the way, he has either authored or co-authored or edited over two dozen major books, book series, and collections, including The Best of Thomas Paine, published in 2021, and Financial Exclusion, published in 2019. So, Dr. Wright, what of that big question? I, I mentioned San Francisco. We're, <laughs> we're looking at essentially doubling the budget. So where does all that extra money come from? Well, the, the 12 to $13 billion that you noted uh, would be the, the gross amount. But one of the dirty secrets about uh, UBI is that, of course, your taxes would go up. So uh, the, the net would only be, you know, uh, kind of spitballing two, two to only in quotation marks, two to three billion uh, per year. Because, uh, you know, you're going to get that $15,000, but they're going to tax you $20,000 or $25,000, right, in order to um, be, be able to make the payments to uh, the, the people with, uh, with no or, or very low incomes who won't be paying any taxes and will we'll get the full, the full 15000 so my, my question in that uh, op-ed in the OC register was, um, what else could we do or could San Francisco do with that 2 to $3 billion, especially if it you know, wants to focus on crime? And I think uh, Mary Thoreau at the Independent Institute in Oakland, right across the bay from San, Fran San Francisco, uh, had uh, an interesting uh, idea, uh, which was to remind San Francisco 
and uh, other pa- policymakers in, in California that the European drug model is not to have open air free drugs and free needles and people living in tents and so on and, and so forth. Uh, the European model is rehabilitation. So they take people off the street and they get them uh, drug uh, treatment in order uh, to get them to stop using drugs, right? So that two to three billion dollars could be used uh, for a program like that, um, where it's actually, you know, would be illegal again to camp in tenderloin and to defecate, uh, you know, in the Presidio and, and, and all of that. Um, and uh, but but the notion is you get people, um, you know, uh, the treatment so they get off uh, the drugs and maybe could uh, could start to pay taxes. That reminds me of an op-ed I wrote several years ago. It didn't get much fortune, uh, much traction, unfortunately, which I called um, uh, California's green minimum wage, where I suggested that uh, it it should be legal for. Uh, people to be able to work on organic farms in California for room and board, uh, like in the old days, right? So that uh, uh, organic farmers could get uh, the labor they need, and people who don't want to uh, live on the street uh, could get some uh, some some job experience and uh, and, and make some organic uh, food for everyone else. Well, and at least if there's a component where there's, there's, as I suggested earlier, normally it's, you know, cash in exchange for labor, there's give and take here, as opposed to just a free giveaway, um, which, as we've suggested, is wrought with all kinds of potential problems, not least of which is where's the money coming from? Uh, and, you know, it's easy to say we're going to raise the taxes. At what point do citizens say, you know what, this just isn't worth it, and finally say, I'm done. So, uh, the notion of at least saying, "Look, there's all kinds of jobs that need to be done: street cleaning and sweeping, and and uh, you know, I mean, we could come up with with lists that would be days long. That at least there could be some modicum of of dignity attached to an effort to try and provide this sort of minimum living wage. Although, again, arguably, it's uh, it's neither a wage nor is it uh, minimally sufficient in a city like San Francisco. Dr. Wright, we're out of time. Boy, there's so much more to peel back on this onion. I'd love to get you back on the program uh, to discuss further. Uh, just absolutely phenomenal uh, content and uh, so much that we need to be, uh, be made aware of and understanding that there are more and more cities that are talking about things like this. And, you know, San Francisco um, had a history of being the city that knew how, I'm not so sure if maybe that does need a little bit of fine-tuning these days, but uh, let's see where it all takes us. Dr. Robert Wright, Senior Research Fellow with the American Institute for Economic Research. We appreciate your time and your insights. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. You might have read recently the daytime TV talk show host Jerry Springer recently passed away. And, um, of course, his major claim to fame, aside from at one time being the mayor of Cincinnati, um, was essentially showcasing people at their worst in many respects. 
And, um, you know, that brings up the broader question of, of how we all, frankly, struggle. We go through trauma. His shows seem to highlight some of the worst trauma and events that people can go through in life. But the reality is, uh, aside from the antics of daytime television, 70 percent of American adults have experienced at least one significant traumatic event in their life. If you're eavesdropping on this conversation, you say, Craig, one, I wish it was just that. Uh, maybe in, in many cases, even more. Sadly, though, if these traumatic experiences are left unaddressed or we just kind of sort of push down all of the emotion, the pain that that results from these events, um, it can have a further traumatic impact on not only the quality of our life, but our relationships as well. Adam Davis joins us briefly to talk about his new book, Unconquered, 10 Principles to Overcome Adversity and Live Above Defeat. Adam, thank you so much for taking some time to be with us today. Give us some insight. First, I'm curious about the, the title of the book. Normally, this is all about conquering. Why did you choose Unconquered as the book title? Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate the opportunity to share. Um, yeah, Unconquered is just, it was born out of out of my own pain and, and um, you know, always undefeated. We face life and we face battles and we've got scars to prove that maybe we've been through some battles where we feel like we didn't come out victorious but because of our faith in God and when we surrender to him we, when we submit to him uh, he's never lost a battle and we can surrender those pains to him those those experiences uh, our past and he can take and work all of that for good and bring glory out of it for his name and that's only when we surrender to him and so you know the Bible tells us that he came and was Bruce for our transgressions. He took beatings for our uh, healing, but it's not just physical healing. Jesus came to die for your trauma healing as well. And no matter what you go through, no matter what you've been through, no matter what you're going to go through in the future, when you surrender all that to Him, He can take something out of it and make something beautiful. And with Him and through Him, you never you're never defeated. You never lose. You're more than a conqueror through Christ. And that's where the term. Uh, in the title, rather, uh, the title Unconquered came from. You know, the the irony, as you point out, is uh, these kinds of experiences, to varying degrees, are things that we all go through, but but oftentimes the coping mechanism is simply not to deal with it at all, and kind of pretend like it's in the past. But it's got a way of coming back and haunting you, doesn't it? It does. If we try to handle it on our own, we make a big mess out of it, and and it's not common for us to make a worse worse uh, of a situation out of it than than what it was to start with um and so i for 20 years nearly 20 years i tried to deal with it in my own power and i had to surrender to him and uh it nearly destroyed me but you know that's the way trauma is a lot of times we want to suppress it pretend it doesn't exist ignore it uh but at the end of the day it's still there and it's just getting more power and more control over our lives in ways that maybe we're not even aware of. But through surrender, through forgiveness, most of all through relationship with Jesus, letting him heal you and using some resources around you if need be, he can change everything for you. 
and he did for me. He's never respected persons. There's a big question behind this that I, I know some people are, are dying to get your perspective on, and, and that is this notion yeah. that, that oftentimes we, we get the idea that once we make a commitment to Christ, we surrender, that, you know, as Scripture tells us, old things have passed away, behold, everything becomes new. And some people say, why did I get cheated of that? Because I don't feel as if old things have all passed away. In fact, even as I've been a Christian, I read the Bible, I go to church faithfully, I give, I try to do everything right, and yet this part of my past, this pain, continues to follow me seemingly wherever I go. Why isn't that it wasn't instantly taken away, question one, and I guess part B of that question is, as much as the impact of trauma has sort of a cumulative effect over time, is part of the answer here the necessity for time in order for this to kind of be a process? What are your thoughts on that? Well, for me, healing has been a progressive journey. It's taken it's taken time. Um, and so, you know, do I believe that God can heal instantly and that he does? Yes, I do. Uh, but I also believe that we shouldn't discount the journey of healing. Um, and so to, to respond to that and the second question, but to the first question, you know, Jesus told us in the New Testament, hey, you know, in this world, you're going to have troubles, but take heart, I overcame the world. And so, yeah, you can have, you know, you can give your life to Jesus. You can surrender to him. But remember, we still live in a fallen world where the enemy runs to and fro looking to devour. John 10, 10 tells us that he came to kill, steal, and destroy, but Jesus came that we might have life and life to the fullest. Then you either believe in that power or you don't. And for me, that means surrendering to him and walking through a world that's fallen, broken, and darkened, and darkening by the day full of evil, and trusting him with every step of the way. He, he's Lord of my steps. He, he orders my steps. And yes, yeah, it's going to be messy, but we'll overcome it because of him. Uh, the pain's, you know, the pain's there, but he's a healer. Acknowledge the pain, but seek him, and follow the path that he lays before you for the healing. The old adage that a long journey begins with the first step. Here's the one step. Yep. Here's the sixty-four thousand dollar question: How do you start that journey? How do you make that first step? Yeah, for me, it was surrender. It started with surrender, and then and then it moved into forgiveness. And forgiveness is something that's taken a very very long time for me. Um, but that moment in a patrol car when I wanted to end my life and I paused and I cried out to God, I said, hey, I don't know if you hear, can hear me. I don't know where you're at, but if you have a reason for me to live, if you have something you can do in my life, you can have it. Otherwise, I'm done. I'm tired of hurting. And there's so many people that feel defeated. They're tired of hurting. They're tired of fighting. But let the power of a living God rejuvenate you and give you a will to live again, give you a desire to fight again, and give you some strength to get forward and move forward and take that first step to surrender. Surrender the pain to him. Maybe you've already given your heart and your soul to him. You believe. You're a follower. But it's time to give the pain to him so that you can live life to the fullest and live unconquered through Jesus. We have uh, literally, and we talk about the radio version of Reader's Digest, we have given you just the Reader's Digest glimpse of Adam's story. There's so much more to it, and I think you'll find this not only a compelling page-turning book, but maybe a a life-changing book. It's called Unconquered, Ten Principles to Overcome Adversity and Live Above 
Defeat, newly published by Broad Street Publishing. You'll find it at Christian bookstores throughout the Bay Area. You can also get it through the usual suspects, Amazon.com, or through Adam's website, theadamdavis.com. That's theadamdavis.com. Our thanks to Adam Davis for being with us on this brief segment of Lifeline. Six o'clock from KFAX. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.